0: Legos, uh, the building blocks for all kinds of structures we like to make, uh, which we're using illustratively for our understanding of the book of Ephesians. That in this uh, book of the Bible, we have uh, the building blocks, the foundations for what it looks like for us to follow Jesus. And if so, you're new with us. My name is Brian. Look forward to looking at God's Word. Where we're going to be in Ephesians chapter one here today. Uh, where we're going to kind of, kind of, it's going to almost be like a good old fashioned Bible study. We're going to work through this fourteen verses, one verse at a time. So it might be helpful to have that open in front of you. Uh, and what we're going to discover in the book of Ephesians uh, over the next number of weeks together is um, maybe I could put it this way, like. Uh, Maybe you have been to uh, the space that I have been, which is the, uh, for me at least, the largest sports store I've ever walked into. And that is a place by the name of Shields just up the street in Springfield. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Shields, it has like every sports department and then some you could imagine. I mean, everything you'd expect, like basketball, football, soccer, golf, you know, all of that. Uh, but it also has like outdoor section and, and um, like, like camping and fishing, as well as like it's got like its own candy store, which is, I don't know where that fits, but it does. It's great. It's wonderful. They have a cafe and, like, like a restaurant. And within the middle of it, uh, if you've ever been, they have a giant indoor, like, full-size Ferris wheel right in the middle of the sports store. And what you'll find at Shields is you could say, like, you could walk around the place, and you could go to a particular, like, the fishing department, and you could examine, like, the fishing lures, you know, in great detail. Uh, or you could hop on the Ferris wheel and kind of get what you might call the bird's eye view of all the different departments uh, and all how they're spread out among the store. I like to think that that's how Ephesians works for us, that rather than a book that dives into one specific little topic uh, over the course of its entirety or as we're gonna look at over the next number of weeks, it really is kind of that Ferris wheel perspective, uh, that we're gonna look at several different departments of what it looks like to kind of build this foundation, to build up our faith on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see over uh, the six chapters that is the book of Ephesians, uh, briefly in just chapters one, two, and three, we get the foundation of what it is that we believe about who God is and where Jesus Christ, uh, his one and only son, plays into all of this. And then out of the overflow of what we believe, how do we live that out? And so it's gonna talk about how we live that out, like in our conduct, in our life's relationships, our marriages, even parenting. And then it closes off the book with this idea that even though all these things are in the, you could say the physical realm, that it says that this is all a spiritual reality, and it talks about the importance of what it's going to call spiritual armor uh, as we kind of battle what's happening in our lives by the power of God at work within it. So it's a great book that we are going to again take that Ferris wheel perspective uh, over all these different departments in the days ahead. Um, but even as we kind of share that, uh, you know. The caution I have with this particular book, or really any book of the Bible, but this one in particular is to not treat it as, okay, this kind of theological treatise that we're gonna systematically work through or even a guidebook for how we're supposed to live this out, but that to recognize this was a letter written to a real church in a real city that had all kinds of real problems, actually, in this city. And what happened was that the result of changed lives started this church that, in turn, then changed an entire city. Uh, you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. That's where the start of this church takes place. And it's amazing what God does through change lives in order to change an entire city. And I think that's what really draws me to this book because I think that's what God still wants for us today, that he wants to change lives right in his church so that we can then go out and be change agents. Uh, over the last several weeks, if you've been a part of uh, the life of our church, just in the last month alone, uh, we've got to experience lives changed. We've experienced and celebrated uh, 17 baptisms uh, over just one month, and then today we've got four more uh, happening as well as uh, more scheduled in the days ahead. And I just love that because it's the idea that as God changes us, we then have this understand that we don't sit here for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but that we go from this hour and we go into the spaces and the places and our families and the places we work and our schools where God has called us to also bring that change. And so it's exciting to see how in Ephesians God made all of that possible. And so that's what we're going to look at here today, starting in verse one of Ephesians chapter one. We're going to work our way through it one verse at a time. Here we go. So follow with me. This is Paul, who's the author of this, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now that phrase, God's holy people, is actually a word that's usually translated in most translations just saints. But I think uh, the NIV is trying to explain what we mean by saints. But even this, God's holy people or saints, uh, like I feel like when I read that, I'm like, are you sure this is addressed to me? Like, I mean, how many of you say, "Okay, if you want to address me, you can just address me as a saint, uh, a God's holy person." And so I feel like I, I fear like the introduction of this letter sometimes leaves us feeling like, kind of like those uh, sometimes those radio ads will like they'll start with a question that doesn't apply to you unless you just kind of eliminate the rest of the noise like uh, you know, like leaky gutters like, nope, gutters are fine, thanks, and just kind of move along. Uh, I think sometimes we think they're like. Holy person? Saint? Like, I don't know. Like me, you might say, that's not me. But let me encourage you. The people of Ephesus would have said the exact same thing. The people of Ephesus, again, this city was, it was kind of a crazy town. Like, it was like a major metropolitan, like pagan party city, kind of the what happens in Ephesus, stays at Ephesus kind of city. Uh, In fact, what we're gonna see in the chapters ahead is how God, uh, they're gonna call them Gentiles. Basically a Gentile is like, hey, you didn't have a very godly upbringing, did you? And so he says that even these Ephesian party animal Gentiles, that God has a plan and a purpose for you in the family of God, and so that translates to us too, that regardless of what you think your story is, walk it into this place. That you're gonna see in Ephesians that God has a plan purposed for you and for me and, you know, that crazy college roommate that would have fit, fit in well in Ephesus. Like, God has a way and a path for all of us into the family of God if we receive it. And so, the rest of Ephesians, verse 2 through 14 here specifically, shows us just how God makes a way for you and me and our crazy college roommates, okay? Verse 2. Apostle Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, this letter is more than just words on paper. It's really like a a package delivery like from UPS that you open it up and you find grace. And grace, by definition, is a gift that we have not earned, a, a gift that we do not deserve. And so when we open up that grace gift from God, what do we find inside? Peace we find the peace of Christ, which that is not like some sort of like tranquil, peaceful, easy-feeling kind of peace. Like This is a peace that Philippians in the scriptures say, quote, surpasses all knowledge and understanding. Like this goes beyond our comprehension to understand what God is doing in a supernatural peace to reconcile us to himself in Jesus Christ. Which again, this is gonna go on to explain how that works as we go into verse three into, just kinda, kinda buckle up. This is arguably one of the most theologically dense passages in all of the scriptures. And so it's gonna be like a big old piece of like chewy meat. We gotta, the more we chew on it, the more we'll get the flavor out of it. But uh, hang with me and you will see all that God has for us in it. All right, verse three. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so those spiritual blessings are the grace and the peace that make us saints and holy in God's sight, Uh, that peace that transcends our understanding fully, it says in Philippians 4-7, because this is how it works. It says that, verse 4, that God, he chose us, that he chose you, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That in love, he, it says, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. All right, so this word right here is our first big bite of chewy meat, Uh, this idea of predestination, that when it comes to a saving faith, a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ, uh, this topic of predestination has been debated for a long time throughout the history of the church. Namely, is it predestination or is it free will? Predestination or free will when it comes to our ability to receive what Jesus Christ has for us. Uh, Simply defined, predestination theology is the belief that God has predetermined in advance those who will be saved, and thus in turn, those who will not be. And so taken to an extreme, it leaves this deterministic, almost fatalistic understanding versus free will theology, which is the belief that humans are in the position to either choose or reject salvation. You know, last week we had on stage kind of this living church history timeline where we pointed at over the last 500 years, kind of this is the beginning over here, uh, where Brock is doing like this uh, Spider-Man move that's representing the spider webbing of all these different denominations over the last 500 years of the church, uh, which a lot of those conversations actually centered around this very topic. Uh, This kind of you've got it right and we've got it wrong when it comes to the theological debate, if you will, around predestination and Free will, which leads to the question that I would have if I was sitting in your seat. Um, okay, Brian. Well, what do we believe, or what do you like? What does the church believe uh, when it comes to this topic? Well, to answer that question, we must start with the understanding of where we understand what it is that we believe, which we can find in our Statement of Beliefs, which we have on our website, you can check that out anytime, but that leads off with this understanding as kind of our, our foundation to even have the conversation. That as a church, we believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the inspired word of God, inerrant in their original writings, complete as the revelation of God's will for salvation and our supreme and final authority in faith and life. And so with this understanding in mind, what do the scriptures say as God's, you could say, supreme and final authority on all things life and faith as to the answer to this question, the complete revelation of God's will for the answer to how salvation works, predestination, or free will? Well, let's then look at what the scriptures say. Well, we just read we see pretty clearly God is doing stuff. Like God is up to things. It says that he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That in love that he did predestine us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Jesus, actually in his own words in John 6, he says that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them. Or so no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. And so as we read that, we might say, okay, does that mean that God wants to save some and not others? Well, the scriptures, as our authority, goes on to also say, for example, in 1 Timothy 2.4, actually, that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And Titus 2.11, which says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And so we see this, this kind of nullifies the idea that God wants not just some, but actually all people to come to a saving knowledge and faith in him. But with that, we have, according to the scriptures, a responsibility. We have, you could say, free will to choose, to repent, to believe, as we see Jesus in his words in the scripture actually puts the ball in our court. Matthew 4, 17, says at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, from that time on, he began to preach, repent. In other words, choose to turn from your sin, turn from going your own way, and turn towards God, his will, and his ways. To repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or 1 John three twenty three, which says, and this is his command. So he's telling us to do something, to believe, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. And so what we see here is that every call from God is a call to repent and believe, to choose to either obey or reject, which is our free will to choose and so it's interesting with our commitment as a church to the scriptures as our supreme and final authority particularly when it comes on the topic of revelation for everything we need for salvation where then do we land when it comes to the question do we believe in predestination or free will well our answer to that question is yes like like yes we believe in predestination and free will, in that clearly the scriptures reveal that both are at play, that the answer to the question is not an either or, it's a both and, because as Jesus said, God calls us onto himself, John 6, and we either respond with repentance and belief, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 2, or we don't. Maybe you could illustrate it this way. Um, Some of you in the recesses of your memory might remember the pressure-packed moment in third grade when a game of maybe dodgeball or kickball was getting ready to get started, and uh, there'd be a group of kids, and you'd be in that group, and standing before you would be two captains, to which they would then begin to choose one at a time and I don't know where you were at on the uh, athletic prowess uh, of a third grader, but maybe you were one of those, like, first-round draft picks, and you have no scarring from this moment in third grade. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, maybe you were the one that just watched people kind of disappear in front of you, and it just kind of came down uh, to you in, like, a potted plant. And they, <laughs> they chose the plants. Like, like, this was your kickball and dodgeball story. Well, know this when it comes to, you could say, God choosing you, choosing me, choosing us, calling us, um, that God, he does not choose us based on any merit or awesomeness of our own. I mean, God is not some like cosmic team captain in the sky looking around saying, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy, I need to get him on my team. No, there is nothing we do to earn that right with God. And in fact, it says it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, quoting back to Psalm 53, that quote, there is no one who is righteous. There's no one who has their act together. It says, no, no one righteous, no, not even one. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, when God first calls uh, the people of Israel before choosing us all in Jesus, uh, it says it this way, that the Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than all the other peoples, like you had something going for you, for you were actually the fewest of all the peoples. I love the way that Bible scholar uh, J.A. Mottier, he puts it this way. He says, Moses had a word for this which has not been bettered. And then quoting Deuteronomy 7, it says, it was not better, or excuse me, because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, but it is because the Lord loves you. And he expounds on this idea saying this, that the reality is, is that God loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. It is no explanation, and yet it is the greatest of all explanations. For it means that though the reason is hidden from us, it is a reason which makes sense to him, that he will never give us up. Isn't that great? Isn't that great that God calls us onto himself, onto his team, regardless of any abilities that we might have? But with that, we then have a responsibility. We have to choose to respond to, you could say, get in the game that God calls us into. It is a both and, as he calls us and we respond. And you might ask, okay, so why did God do this? Why does God call us unto himself? Well, again, the end of verse four, it's in love. It's in love. Again, he loves you because he loves you. It's in love, verse five, that he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one, which is Jesus, that he loves. That he gave his one and only son. That in him we have the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. And so what this part of the passage shows us as God calls us onto himself, this is what we're saying yes to. We are saying yes to the redemption, which that word, it literally means to buy back that where you could say in your life where you know sin and shame and you know struggle has owned you God says no I buy you back you are mine I redeem you and what was the price to buy you back the blood of his one and only son Jesus Christ so that we could receive the forgiveness of sins that that's what we have in him and that is what it is that we get and why again simply because it's who he is because he loves us. It's in accordance with who our God is for us. As it goes on in verse seven, that in accordance with, again, this, our good God, the riches of his grace that clearly he has lavished on us in this way, in his one and only son, Jesus Christ, for the redemption, the buying back, and the forgiveness of our sins. Now, even as I say that, even as we understand that that's what we're saying yes to, one of my, I guess you could say, concerns when it comes to this reality of the forgiveness of our sins, that when we hear that, we're kind of like, ah, I've heard that before. You know, I said yes to the forgiveness of my sins a long time ago. Been there, done. It's almost like the gutter commercial. Like, leaky Like, no, I've got this. Like, it's so basic, you might say, that God forgives us of our sin. But that's where the caution lies. uh, That this idea that, the forgiveness of our sin, it is not basic. It is not like something we just check off and then move on from. No, the forgiveness of sin, uh, we've said as in the title of this series, it's foundational for following Jesus. It's foundational in that it's something that we continue to build on and return to time and time again. And I think the concern I have, I know in my own life, uh, and maybe you can feel this too, is that like, I start to live as if this is just basic and don't think about the realities of my sin in my life, and risk the caution of 1 John 1.8, where we are warned that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth then is not in us. I love the way um, that G.K. Chesterton kind of pointed this out. G.K. Chesterton, he is a uh, renowned Bible theologian of the early th- early 20th century, and, and in his time, the London Times were doing um, kind of a series of stories where they asked, you know, popular writers and philosophers of the day to submit essays to respond to the question: "Quote, what is the problem of the universe? What is the problem of the universe?" You know, as I think about that, I, I kind of wonder, like, what would I say to that? Like, what's, what's wrong with the world today? What's, what's the problem of the universe? Like, like, how would you answer that question? I bet you'd have a list. And I bet you'd have a lot of things to say about the things on that list. Uh, and sure enough, people in that day certainly did. They submitted all kinds of essays. But uh, Chesterton, his response to the question, what is the problem of the universe, uh, he gave to the London Times, he gave a $1 line response, and he simply said this, that the problem with the universe is me. The problem with the universe is me, with this understanding that it's only me that I can control. Uh, Or as the fruit of the Spirit talks about in the book of Galatians, like the Holy Spirit uh, is to demonstrate self-control, that I have to give attention to my continual changing, that I must always continue to come back to the foundation of the reality of my own sin, confessing that and repenting, continually turning away from that through the blood of Jesus Christ that forgives us and by the power of his Holy Spirit that helps me turn away and move away from that sin in my life. And so sometimes I think, again, we talk about the idea of sin in our lives. And, uh, but I would argue, like, it's not just kind of this ethereal reality. Like, I think if we're paying attention, like, I think we know our heart. I think we know the, the places it can go and, and kind of default to. Uh, recently, a friend of mine gave me a, a prayer book that had within it um, this, this, this prayer that I find myself just returning to again and again and again because I find quite many times my own sin on repeat. In this particular prayer, it just simply says this It says, Have mercy upon me, O God. And then here are the sins like, like, for my deceitful heart and crooked thoughts, for harsh words spoken deliberately, for thoughtless words spoken hastily, for envious and prying eyes, for ears that rejoice in what is wrong and do not rejoice in the truth for greedy hands, for feet that have been lazy and have gone into wrong places, for proud and disdainful looks. For if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Which of course is the quote of that 1 John 1.8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And while there's a period on that sentence, that is not the end of the passage. As it goes on in 1 John 1, 9, this well-known verse, but here's the power of the good news, the gospel of what Jesus is up to, that if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge and confess our sins, then we can know that he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. It's God that's doing the work in us. But again, that warning, verse 10, if we claim that we have not sinned, We make him out to be a liar, and the word is not in us. You might say, man, a liar, like that's strong language. But that's exactly what's at play. If we act like we have no sin, and thus obviously no need for forgiveness, then what we're doing is rendering null and void the foundation of our faith, which is what Jesus Christ has done to forgive the sin that we do have in our life. That verse seven again of Ephesians one, that it's in him that we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. I love the way that Pastor Tim Keller uh, explains how this plays out. He says, the gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves, that we are still sinful and still sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous. And then I love this. And because of this, we can say that we can recognize we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but at the same time, more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. And all at the very same time. And so how is it that both of these realities, this paradox of sorts can, can coexist and both be fully true? Well, simply put, the reason it can be is because God said so. Because God said so. He says it's in him that we get to have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That God is doing this with all wisdom and understanding That he has made known to us, it says, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. That's such an important word here, this idea of the mystery of what God is up to. Deuteronomy 29, this is really a continuation of that, this mystery. that It says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. That that's how mystery works. That there's secret things that only God knows that He holds to Himself, but there's also part of this which He chooses to reveal to us. That's how a mystery kind of comes together. There's both secret and revealed things, and so as this idea kind of comes together, I think about like you know like if you ever have been in the ocean and you and you start to kind of wade out and you get kind of where it's like where you can't touch anymore and you're like, man, this is this is kind of deep. This is like six feet or seven feet or whatever. But what you know in your head is that just a little further out, like. Deep hasn't even been touched. Like it's like, like miles and miles deep where no one has ever gone before. And I think sometimes we get wrapped up in conversations around uh, the things that are hidden from us, that God's uh, are his, and we miss out on the beauty of kind of just the depth of what he's given us to be able to see. And we get caught up in the wrong things for too long when simply just doing what God has for us in the depths of what is already revealed to us is more than enough. I love the way that Pastor J.D. Greer, uh, who is uh, kind of our complimentary Bible study that we're asking you to check out between the weekends through Right Now Media, says if you were able to catch that, maybe in your small group this past week or on your own, he simply said it this way uh, when it comes to the mysteries of God. He says, you know, actually it's arrogance and even disobedience to choose to just sit around debating the nuances of theology at the exemption of when simple obedience is all that's required. Sometimes we do all of this and just miss it. Hey, simple obedience is required, that we'd rather talk about it, what we don't know, than obey what it is that we do know. That regardless of the mystery, of the nuances of theology, of these secret things of God, of kind of that debate again, like where is, when it comes to God choosing me and me responding, like where does God end and where do I begin, like in all of that, like regardless of how it works out, our response of obedience is clear in the revealed things that we are to repent from sin, to confess that, to receive forgiveness, and to follow Jesus in his ways and to do this on repeat. Rinse, wash, repeat. So that we can experience verse 10. It goes on in Ephesians says, so that we can put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the purpose of his will, meaning like we're not sure how it works, but we know that it works, that it's his plan, the conformity to his purpose and his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Essentially, that regardless of how it all works, we can take confidence that it works, that what God is doing is working. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his classic Mere Christianity, uh, he explains and illustrates this this way. He says the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how it works. But what all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. I will tell you what I think it is like. All sensible people know that if you are tired and hungry, a meal will do you good. But the modern theory of nourishment about vitamins and proteins is a different thing. People ate their dinners and felt better long before the theory of vitamins was ever heard of. And if the theory of vitamins is someday abandoned, they will go on eating their dinners just the same. Theories about Christ's death are not Christianity. They are explanations about how it works. You see, regardless of all the theological nuances, we have the confidence that it does work, that God is at work, and that it works out, that concluding verses of our passage, verse 13, that you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And so really, the only question that brings all of this to a head in our passage uh, is right here. Have you believed? Have you believed? And by believe, we don't mean just this like cognitive agreement that God exists. Uh, It says in James that uh, you believe that there's a God? Great, even the demons believe that and shudder. No, this word for belief here is uh, the Greek word pistis, which means to place trust in, to place your faith in, to put all of your weight on something. And so can you say, that there was this time, this moment, this thing that even as God called you, that you chose in response that you can say, yeah, yeah, when I believed. Have you had this moment? I hope you have. And if you haven't, we would of course be honored to have that conversation about what that could look like in your life. But just to kind of wrap it up, this is what it looks like. Take this stool. I believe there is a stool there. I believe that it is black. I, I believe it has four legs. Now, I don't know how it all works. I mean, it looks to be all right. I mean, I don't see any screws or nails or anything, but it seems to be holding itself up okay. So I, I believe, I cognitively acknowledge that there is a stool there. But I haven't pissed us. I haven't put my faith in, believed in, put my trust in it until I actually take the step of putting my full weight on the stool. And so I would ask you, again, have you believed? Have you, pissed this? have you placed all of your weight and your trust in God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ? If you have, then I'm going to invite you here in a moment to uh, celebrate what made that possible uh, through this little gift that Jesus gave us called communion. So hopefully you received one of these on your way in to worship to be able to do that. But if you haven't, if you haven't pissed us, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you to take the next few moments to have that conversation with him. Like, take your doubts to him. I, I love this prayer, this conversation this one dad has in the Bible with Jesus. He says, "I do believe, but help me with my." Unbelief, one of my favorite, most honest lines in all the Bible. Is that you could talk to God about your desire for faith and belief in Him and trust that as He calls you on to Himself, that you too can respond. And if that's you today, again, I'd encourage you don't leave this place without having a conversation with me or maybe someone at the Start Here table or online. You can call or text the church. Um, we'd be honored to also have that conversation with you and between you and God. And so, with these ideas in mind, We're gonna take a few moments for all of us to remember, again, how all this was made possible through God's giving of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm gonna pray for us. And then as uh, you consider and reflect, as you feel led over the next song, we invite you to remember him as you partake. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the son that you so loved that you also so loved us, that you would, again, a mystery to us, that you would give your one and only son to give us this gift of forgiveness and the gift of a new life. We don't understand how it all works, but we're thankful that it does. And in this moment, we give you thanks as we take the bread, remembering your body given, and we drink of the cup, remembering your blood shed. In the name of Jesus, we give you thanks, amen.